0: everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we got an interesting case for you and a face, or I guess a voice that you've heard from before. We are back with Ross Hoffmeyer, our favorite South African anesthesiologist and intensivist, um, still over at the University of Cape Town and doing uh, wilderness medicine down there. But um, we've had our fun out in the field, so we're going to get into a little bit of airway action today, and he's going to talk to us about getting gas where it should go. Uh, Brian, you want to take it away? Hey, thanks. Hey, Ross, welcome back. Thanks very much. It's great to be back.
1: So, we're going to do a little bit of airway talk. Um, You know, Brandon and I just did an episode not too long ago where we sort of talked about the way we handle airway stuff, but we thought it'd be nice to talk to an expert, Uh, especially given, you know, unfortunately, I don't know how it is in South Africa right now, but unfortunately here in the States, we are seeing an uptick in COVID again. And unfortunately, finding ourselves back in that same position we were back in 2020, where we were talking about, having to teach people to manage airways who didn't maybe manage airways all the time. So I thought we might run through a case and you could give us some of your expertise uh, that would help not only the the sort of the new newly dragooned airway management people, uh, but also those of us who do it every day, maybe to do it
2: better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a really good topic to discuss. Uh, as you say, uh, we're also deeply in the throes of uh, of a third wave of COVID here that just seems to be going on and on and on. And I've been doing pretty much nothing professionally since late June, uh, other than uh, managing critically ill COVID patients uh, and particularly doing intubations where they are failing uh, high flow oxygen therapies on the wards and need to be ventilated and, and retrieved to ICUs. So we've been working a lot with uh, teams of physicians and uh, and lots of ad hoc teams and people brought from all different areas of the hospital to manage the the wave so this is a really close to my heart and cl- uh, clinical practice at the moment so yeah let's talk about it
1: yeah well one thing i've noticed about covid intubations in particular is everybody seems to have a what i would consider a heightened sense of safety and technique and all these other things that you know in retrospect we probably should all the time and i think maybe even those of us who do this all the time get a little too comfortable sometimes and forget the basics so i think even if you're even if you're somebody who intubates people on a regular basis uh, hopefully some of this will be helpful even if it's stuff that you knew at one point and maybe have forgotten or just need a little bit of nudging on so we're going to start our case with you've been called to uh, intubate a patient uh, and this patient can be in the ICU or the emergency department or, or wherever, really. Uh, I don't know how things work for you, but some places, uh, anesthesia or um, ICU or some service does all the in-house intubations, no matter where they are. So we'll just assume that this is a patient who is, is. We'll, we'll go ahead and put them in the ICU. Uh, the patient is a 56-year-old unvaccinated male who has COVID-19. Um, he has, like you alluded to earlier, he has been failing high flow nasal cannula. Uh, he's currently on high flow nasal cannula at hundred percent FiO2 uh, and 60 liters of flow setting in the uh, high eighties to low nineties. He is visibly dysmic when you arrive and, and having some difficulty with his work of breathing, uh, but he's not crashing. So you have a little bit of time. What's the first thing that you're going to do when you approach this guy?
2: Yeah, I think this is a really nice uh, realistic scenario. This is what we're facing all the time. Uh, so, <clears throat> the first thing that's going to happen, even before we approach this guy, is you know we have uh, designed protocols uh, and trained really hard on them, and designed systems uh, so that when we bring together ad hoc teams in this kind of situation, you know, it might be uh, trainees or specialists from different fields across the hospital who all been uh, press ganged into working in our ICUs and COVID wards, uh, that everyone's been trained on the same system. Everyone is working off the same uh, song sheet, or in this case, uh, actually a a checklist. Uh, and, And everyone has an idea of what the different roles are and can slot into those roles really, really effectively. So there's quite a lot of background prep work and training that's gone in the past waves that when a team comes together, we actually already have a pretty good idea of what we're going to be doing. I think then also, one obviously has to say, approaching this patient, uh, we're taking cognizance of the of the risk to staff, and so we must be thinking about, uh, particularly the personal protective equipment that needs to be worn, and we could go down a whole rabbit hole talking about uh, PPE. Uh, but we know that that must at least feature good quality uh, respiratory protection, so probably a n N95 equivalent or better respirator. Probably some kind of uh, eye or face protection, such so as goggles or a visor. Uh, and then for most of these uh, intubations and, and resuscitations as well, uh, we're typically seeing people wearing you know wearing long gowns and gloves to offer some extra protection. So I think uh, as I'm approaching this patient, I'm first thinking about uh, assembling a team, having enough hands. Uh, and and just making sure that that team is protected.
1: Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I think this is another of those things that I think we're going to take out of this pandemic. I, I'm not sure I'll ever intubate someone again without at least some measure of PPE. Um, you know, frequently prior to this, I would intubate people with no mask, no glasses, goggles, etc. Uh, I don't know that that's ever going to happen again, even if it's just a regular surgical mask and my go- glasses. Um, I think that's something, the one thing that I'm going to take away from this.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with you. And, you know, I feel a bit guilty saying this, but I, I've been teaching ATLS courses for, uh, a, a, over a decade, uh, ooh, no, even longer than that while well, I'm getting old, uh, where we, you know, every, every time we've always said to people, well, put on your PPE mask and goggles and gown. Uh, and, and yet how many of us have actually practiced that? And really the pandemic has, has focused our attention and we've seen so many, Healthcare practitioners getting sick, getting quite badly ill, uh, adding extra workload to colleagues when when they're off sick, and we've we've had colleagues uh, who have succumbed to COVID. And yeah, we we can just never take those those risks again. So looking after ourselves, uh, we made this point when we talked about rescue. We said, you know, the the, the patient is always uh, first to die, uh, but it, it it hones the thoughts that we must look after each other, and uh, and we've kept that on our our COVID intubation checklist uh, that we do a PPE buddy check and we look around and make sure that everyone is protected.
1: Yeah. I think that's a good idea. Um, So once you're, once you're satisfied that you and your team are protected, what's next?
2: Right. So we actually have a, like a one page uh, checklist, which in fact is a, is a series of checklists uh, which are all grouped onto a page. Uh, And, uh, and we designate different roles and somebody actually gets the role of, uh, of, of, running through the checklist. They do other jobs uh, during the actual intubation and any resuscitation they may need to follow. Uh, But they will start with the first chunk. So the first chunk on the checklist is uh, the preparation, and that's the PPE, the buddy check, and so forth. And the next chunk is uh, to start prepping uh, the equipment and prepping the patient. So in terms of the equipment prep, uh, there are essential airway devices that we have at the bedside, uh, and then there are adjunctive airway devices and rescue devices, which uh, are immediately available. What that means is either they're on a prepped resuscitation cart that's in the unit, or in fact, if we're doing this at, at the bedside in the wards or anywhere else in the hospital, we have a, a an airway rescue bag, which stays sealed, but it's got the items that we might need to have uh, in in a hurry. All those bags are, uh, are standardized, pre-checked according to other checklists when they're packed, uh, and uh, that allows us to move them around and, and recheck them quickly. So, essential airway equipment gets prepped, uh, gets checked, the rescue bag is checked, uh, someone is delegated to, uh, to drawing up drugs, and someone else usually starts to prepare the patient. And again, we've got a patient preparation checklist, which includes things like having the monitoring on, uh, having the patient positioned correctly, having the suction checked and immediately at hand, uh, and once that checklist has been run through, they'll actually start with the, uh, with the pre-oxygenation. Uh, and then there's a challenge response system for, for proceeding with the intubation itself.
1: Oh, okay, good. So you mentioned having you know, sort of your rescue equipment, your backups and stuff. What's, what's your go-to backup equipment?
2: So the uh, the standard that we have for COVID intubations uh, is a first-line approach using video laryngoscopy with an intubation with a preloaded bougie. Uh, our, uh, our go-to rescue if we fail an intubation, because these patients desaturate superlatively quickly, is that we go straight to placing a second-generation supraglottic airway. Uh, we may vary that technique very slightly when uh, we've got a, a, you know, a highly trained second operator anesthesiologist who is uh, playing the, the the hot two role, the airway backup role. They may, if they see an immediately correctable factor with the laryngoscopy and the intubation, either assist or step in. But generally, if there's a failure of uh, first attempted intubation, we go directly to oxygenating with the supraglottic and then we revise and we make another plan. Our plan C, if there's a failure with the uh, the supraglottic or if we still not to oxygenate the patient, is to then return to face mask ventilation. Uh, That will be the the, the primary airway operator using a two-handed seal with a bag valve mask device with a PEEP valve uh, attached to high-flow oxygen. Uh, with the second person then uh, proceeding with with bagging. So it's a two operator, two hand or three hand technique. Uh, and if we are continuing to have a failure of airway access, then we'll revert to to front of neck. So very familiar sort of plan ABCD uh, with the, the variation being that uh, we don't go back to face mask bagging unless uh, there there's some reason why we can't immediately place a superglottic
0: and oxygenate through that device. What's the video device you're using?
2: All right. So uh, we have a variety of devices uh, actually within our center and across our operating theaters, uh, we use the STORTS, uh, the, the CMAC system uh, because of a, a variety of reasons and interoperability and so forth. So for our COVID intubation teams, we're using a, a STORTS CMAC with a Macintosh blade. Uh, and their pocket monitor device, which is great because it means you don't have to position a separate video laryngoscope screen. the The screen's right on the device. Uh, it's it's pretty robust. And for our setting, where uh, you know we we reusing devices on a very regular basis, it means we can do the cleaning and processing of the laryngoscopes and put them straight back into uh, into use. So we've got two systems, and we we rotate them quickly. We use a a Macintosh blade uh, because. Uh, It's obviously much more approachable for most people who trained with direct laryngoscopy. It also allows, if there's soiling of the blade or if there's a failure of the video display for any reason, uh, allows one to actually just change straight to using direct laryngoscopy. Uh, And also, as you're aware, Macintosh blades typically allow a more rapid placement of, uh, of a tube. And the vast majority of our COVID patients, uh, they are physiologically difficult airways, not anatomically difficult airways. Uh, So using a a traditional blade shape like the Macintosh makes a lot of sense to us.
0: Now, I have to ask about just the rationale for that protocol, because it all sounds really sort of unassailable, safe, um, just a rational way to deal with most airways. Was... Are there specific COVID reasons that you came up with this approach? Or, I mean, do you think that most of this is the way you could have been doing it all along? I mean, the only downside I can see is that it may not be the best approach for training because you don't give people a lot of chances. But other than that, I mean, it's not like you're putting in a special COVID tube or something. I mean, it just all seems like good ideas.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think you made some comment right at the very beginning to say, uh, you know, Has COVID not actually just brought out how we should always be functioning? I think some of the small COVID modifications, um, look, I I am a a video laryngoscopy fan. I I do believe uh, VL is the way of the future. Uh, And I typically use VL for almost all of my intubations uh, because I'm frequently using it as a teaching tool. One of the reasons for using VL in COVID obviously was uh, to increase the teamwork and to improve the ability to have two people confirm the tube placement because uh, it's very, very difficult to auscultate with a stethoscope on a COVID patient without uh, actually contaminating yourself. So that, uh, that aspect was there. But also uh, to, you know, to speed the intubation process and to help where we do have uh, unanticipated difficult airways. Uh, another small variation of the technique. You know, obviously, as anesthesia providers, if we're struggling with intubation, we'll almost always return to face mask ventilation, reoxygenate the patient, modify whatever factors we can, and then proceed with another intubation attempt. And going immediately and directly to using a supraglottic device was an intervention that we we instituted for COVID because we were trying to uh, minimize aerosolization, and we were worried that bag mask ventilation. Uh, may lead to more aerosolization. I think as our understanding of uh, you know the so-called aerosol-generating procedures, and as our usage of uh, uh, of filters on our bag valve mask devices, and our recognition of uh, you know how COVID is spread and how it's actually airborne just about all the time, just with patients breathing and talking and and being in an a ward. Uh, I think that that necessity of of not using a BVM and immediately going to a supraglottic airway is probably less important. But we've left the protocol the way it is because we are, again, training a lot of infrequent intubators and infrequent uh, resuscitators using these protocols uh, and ingraining that concept of the moment you're struggling, if a patient is desaturating, and most of these patients are hypoxic to start with, uh, immediately going to a rescue airway device, that being your supraglottic. Uh, I really feel very, very strongly about that. And interestingly, we haven't needed supraglottic rescue in a lot of COVID patients. Uh, but I can, I've got at least a handful. I can think of five, maybe six cases where a, a team which didn't have anesthesia or emergency medicine uh, or you know experienced intubator input. Uh, had to proceed with an intubation, uh, failed an intubation, placed the supraglottic and the patient was oxygenating just fine in the supraglottic by the time further help uh, arrived. So yeah, I, I think that that mental model of if I'm struggling with an intubation, it's not a failure to go to a supraglottic. It's the right thing to do it and do it quickly. That's something which we should be teaching and we should be focusing on.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, Cause I think sometimes we do see it as a failure, right? We, we, I couldn't get, I mean, I say that even all the time, I couldn't get the airway. I had my attending had to step in. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, that, that would probably even subconsciously make me resist doing that because I would see it as a failure. So it, it is a sort of a paradigm shift.
2: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the only thing that matters to the patient uh, ultimately is failure to oxygenate uh, uh you know, Acknowledging a failed intubation, a failed intubation is not a is not a failure. Uh, a failed intubation is just a step which has not proceeded the way you wanted it to. The failure is to then get fixated on intubation. Uh, I, you know, I often when i even training the interns, I say to them, "Go and read the uh, obituaries column in the newspaper if you if you still know what a newspaper is," uh, and uh, you know you'll not notice anybody who it says in their obituary that they died for the lack of a polyvinyl chloride tube through their vocal cords, right? That's not what kills people. It's, it's cerebral hypoxia and uh, you know, cardiomyocytes that aren't getting oxygen that kills people. So it's, it's not about the bike lamps on strong. It's not about the tube going in. It's about oxygenating the patient. Uh, and, and I think you know, that's where, for instance, the work of people like Nick Crimes and his Vortex approach is so really, really valuable about telling people, if your approach is not working, then get a move on and find another approach to oxygenate the patient. It's just the oxygenation that matters.
1: Yeah, um, that's good. So, you had mentioned how rapidly these patients desaturate. Uh, I assume pre oxygenation is part of your normal pathway, even with these patients?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, many of them, well, if not all of them, uh are, we, we're not intubating anybody who's hasn't at least had a good trial of, uh, of high flow nasal oxygenation. So, you know, they, they're sitting on, as you say, 50, 60, 70 liters a minute of, uh, of humidified, 100% O2 uh, and we'll often get to the bedside and, and we really have had a, a massive shortage of, of ICU beds, despite, you know, Escalating our, our quantity of beds uh, three or four times above normal levels, uh, so you often we'll we'll come and intubate these patients not when the SATs are in the in the eighties or nineties, but when they're already having desaturations into the sixties or seventies, uh, and it's interesting to see that although we know high flow uh, and nasal oxygenation does give you a measure of of CPAP uh, when you put on a, a, a well fitting you know face mask or anesthesia mask. Uh, with oxygen coming out of a out of a BVM uh, and you have a peep valve on that so you're getting the, you're getting peep of uh, you know 5 10 even 15 centimeters of water often the oxygenation actually really improves and and we then get sats uh, sometimes in, then into the 80s or 90s so definitely uh, high quality oxygenation makes a difference there is a good question and and that is you know right at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't know a lot about uh, aerosols and and how they were being generated with these patients and what the risks were uh, generally the consensus amongst airway experts was to uh, you know oxy- pre-oxygenate with a, with a well sealing face mask and definitely not use uh, high flow either for pre-oxygenation or for apneic oxygenation uh, and and I really think the thinking has come around that number 1 We realize that these environments are just full of aerosols the whole time, so we must have protection all the time. Uh, Number two, we've realized that the very very rapid desaturation here—it's the epitome of the physiologically difficult airway. So maybe we should be thinking more about uh, using uh, apneic oxygenation, uh, uh, you know, no desat kind of strategy using the high flow. The the pay or for the the more like the uh, the balance there has to come from. Are you able to get as good PEEP or CPAP uh, with a good mask seal over your your high-flow nasal cannulae, which are often quite bulky. And I think that is the the balance we have to find. I'm not sure that we can achieve as good pre-oxygenation, leaving the cannulae on, uh, and uh, will that make much of a difference uh, to the short apnea period if you intubate these patients rapidly? I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm not sure that we'll easily get research to answer that question
1: yeah because i do think that is something to consider right is you're going to get a worse mask seal um with even a regular cannula but especially a the large high flow cannula than you would without it so is it is it worth having that extra oxygen uh but having a poor seal on your mask
2: yeah absolutely and and i don't as i say i don't know the answer to that question i I do know uh, we are tending to try and do these intubations very, very rapidly. So, you know, from from studies such as the, the preoxy flow and the fellow trial, we know that if your intubation times are reasonably swift, then using apneic oxygenation uh, or a no-DSAT approach doesn't really make a difference, which is logical because what you're doing is you're extending the apneic time beyond the limits of your pre-oxygenation. Uh, the question is, you know, would... Uh, these patients, when they desaturate so rapidly, they have a very short, safe apnea time. Uh, would apneic oxygenation make a difference in them? Uh, again, don't, don't know. Uh, if we can figure out how to study, it would be great. But uh, the, the value of having the, the PEEP uh, on, a, on a well-fitting mask. I've, I've seen it time and time again with patient SATs coming up and probably getting them higher up that uh, slippery slope of the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve is winning you more of a margin than the apneic oxygenation would.
1: Yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about masking because I feel like this is a skill that is easily as important as actually intubating the patient. Um, and one that I see a lot of people don't not do a great job at. Um, you know, I see kind of this, I, I, again, sort of similar to the hesitancy to uh, go to a superglottic airway for fear of feeling like a failure. This, this idea that I'm going to uh, hold the mask with one hand and bag with the other hand, um, you know, because I'm macho and I can do everything myself. What, uh, what do you, how do you teach people to bag?
2: Well, I think we need to reflect on the fact that the way we've traditionally taught people to bag I I, I don't know if it's the same in in your setting uh, or in your context as it is in mine but typically the way that medical students and junior doctors learn how to bag uh, is they get taken to a skills lab where there is a Laodol doll or a similar mannequin lying on a table uh, they place a you know an ambu bag or a bag of mask uh, face mask over the the mannequin's face they squeeze the bag the lungs inflate and they go yeah I can bag uh, and actually, that's an absolutely terrible model for teaching because every mannequin's face looks exactly the same. The masks seal perfectly. There's no soft tissue that collapses. Uh, and the the lung compliance is entirely unrealistic, uh, particularly if you compare it to the, uh, shall we say, the the shape or the habitus of the average uh, patient who you actually need to bag. Uh, and we see this all the time in anesthesia training. When you, uh, when you have a self-inflating bag that's, that, and a mannequin with no soft tissue, uh, you get away with absolute murder. Uh, I use the term deliberately. When you come into the operating theater and you've got a, a collapsible bag, which will only stay inflated if you maintain a seal, uh, and you've got soft tissue and so forth to deal with, then it really unmasks, pun intended, uh, the uh, the practitioner's lack of, of skill in doing it. And that's really where we are able to get them to get to grips with using a two-handed technique, what an actual jaw thrust is. I, I frequently see people supposedly doing a jaw thrust when they've got just their fingers on the tip of the chin uh, and, you know, have to coach people into the fact that if you want to thrust the jaw forward, you need your fingers behind the angle of the jaw, which is actually, you know, as we know well, it's actually on your earlobe. Uh, so... Yeah, I think the way to train people well is to get them into the setting with real patients who they can actually bag and patients with no muscle tone, and the the operating theatre is the is the place to do that. It's just a matter of actually getting people into that space.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a great point. Uh, and I I had not thought of that before about the the self inflating circuit. Really, does probably show your um, your flaws really well. Uh, because if you don't have that good seal, then it's just not going to inflate. Um, so, so two handed technique with someone else actually squeezing the bag. Um, do you, if you're the, you're the intubator, are you the one holding the bag in place? Uh, or are you squeezing the bag or are you just standing back letting other people do that and keeping your, uh, fingers and arms ready for intubating action?
2: So our, our protocol, we have uh, we have the, the so-called hot rolls, which are immediately at the bedside, uh, and we have typically a three-person team uh, immediately around the patient, uh, and the hot one is standing in the traditional positions so of above the, the patient's head, uh, and they hold the uh, the the mask on with a two-handed seal while we're doing the pre-oxygenation, uh, and if we decide to use you know, gentle ventilation or gentilation. Uh, while the muscle relaxant and, uh, and, and induction agent are being given, then the the hot two, who's the airway assistant, will do the will do the gentle squeezing of the bag. If we return to face mask ventilation, then again uh, the hot one will uh, maintain that two-handed seal while the the hot two, the assistant, does the bag squeezing. The only time that uh, that may uh, change is. When we do our team briefing, we decide who uh, the most skilled or the most confident with doing front of neck access is, uh, and if that's the uh, if if that's the airway assistant, then we would tell the, the person you know in the in the hot one role uh, who is the intubator uh, to then continue with attempts at bagging from the top while the other person does front of neck access. So it's always a two handed seal, other than that specific uh, indication. Uh, the hot one person stays in that position when they when the patient is uh, the muscle relaxant's worn on or the patient's finished vasculating because we're often using uh, succinylcholine uh, for these rapid intubations. Uh, they then put the bag down and pick up the laryngoscope and they proceed with the intubation.
1: All right. So we sort we sort of skipped ahead. We were talking about preoxygenation and then we sort of skipped ahead to to mask ventilation. Um, but what what do we do in terms of positioning to for these patients to optimize them for uh, intubation
2: yeah so you know we obviously all talk about uh, the sniffing position uh, we we train people in looking at the uh, the ear to sternal notch uh, alignment uh, and and uh, the flex tension uh, concept with a term coined by uh, uh, Tim cook um, I think one has to be careful about uh, you know th- there's people who look at uh, sort of a raising the head of the bed and then pulling the patient's head over the t- over the top of the bed, which is not actually a, a flex tension position. It, it's good because the, the upper body is slightly raised, uh, which improves the respiratory mechanics, uh, but it's not great because the, uh, the, both the occipital joint and the cervical spine are extended or hyperextended. extended. So, what we're looking for is we're looking for a position, uh, ideally, where the, where the patient's uh, um, uh, chest and thorax is slightly raised, again, to improve those respiratory mechanics, often because these patients are frequently quite large. It also gets the, the weight of the, of the abdomen from pushing uh, you know, abdominal contents up against the diaphragm. Uh, and then we aim for cervical flexion, so flexion of the neck with atlantooccipital extension, so extension of the, of the head. Uh, and that gives you that, that ear yeah, distinal notch or the flex tension or sniffing the morning air or whatever, uh, sipping a craft beer p- position you'd, you'd like to call it. Uh, I try and encourage people, if they're positioning the patient's uh, we don't have uh, fancy elevation um, pillows, and, and you know, these, there's a troop um, elevation pillow which is specifically designed for this. Uh, we've got good old hospital pillows and blankets, and I encourage people to actually use blankets uh, because they're less compressible than pillows, and they tend to slide out less, less easily, uh, or settle less easily. So they're, they're firmer for doing positioning. And if people are not certain about how much they want to raise the patient or how much to put under the patient. I always tell them to err on the side of putting in a little bit more uh, uh, positioning or a little, you know, one extra blanket uh, because it's a lot easier to pull something out from underneath the patient than it is to try and lift an unconscious patient and put something in, in the middle of an intubation.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Okay. So now do you, you position your patients like this and then put them flat or do you, Elevate the head of the bed a little bit or how, how do you do in terms of
2: that? Yeah. So, so as I say, I, I like the head of the bed elevated a little bit. So, uh, you know, not quite uh, semi fathers but but at least a little bit elevated. And uh, again, as I say, that improves your your spiritual mechanics. Uh, one can raise or lower the, the actual height of the bed uh, to make it easy for the person who's intubating so that they're, they're not overly stooped or they're not standing on their tiptoes to try and um, you know, get access to the patient. Often we need to pull the patients up so that their head is close to the the top of the mattress uh, of the bed. Uh, and uh, and then very importantly for us, whether it's ICU or the wards, uh, an important step is actually unlock the bed and pull it a good meter or, you know, sorry, what's that, three feet, uh, at least a few feet away from the wall to make space so that, uh, you know, you can, you can move freely around the head of the bed uh, and particularly things like getting uh, oxygen pipelines and cables and monitoring cables and things out of the way, uh, because it becomes a dog show if you've got to try and duck under things and climb over things when there's an airway emergency. You want to get as close to having that good 360-degree access as you can.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. I mean, we do move the he- bed away from the head wall a little bit. Um, I don't know about in your rooms. It feels like in our places, now that I'm thinking about it, even in these much bigger ICU rooms, uh, they tend to be much bigger in terms of width, but uh, but not so much in depth. it's It's hard to get the head of the bed really that far away from the head wall without then diminishing the room you have at the foot of the bed uh, to get people around from that side. so uh, but that's something certainly to uh, to keep in mind to to get that space for for folks to be able to work.
2: Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, you know, obviously it's got to be balanced based on your on on your setting. Uh, but uh, I, in fact, I remember back to our our very first COVID intubation activation was back in March of last year, uh, and uh, the the at that stage, very uh, optimistically, our hospital designated. a... Uh, sort of a fairly remote ward, uh, which could take about fifteen patients, uh, as being the designated COVID area, and all the patients were in with known COVID were in these little side rooms. Uh, and and you're quite right. If you moved the the bed. Far enough away from the wall so that one could actually get your shins between the bed and the wall, uh, then it was it was bumping against the the foot end wall of of the room, uh, and and that that did turn into a dog show. I remember li- literally kneeling on the bed to try and actually perform an intubation. It it was a, it was an unmitigated well it wasn't a disaster. We intubated the patient and, and she did okay, but uh, yeah, we, we we certainly learned from that experience, and fortunately now. Uh, As you say, most of our ward spaces and our ICU spaces are actually six-bedded units, Uh, so we've got quite a lot of space to move the beds around. It does make a difference.
1: Yeah, that's good. Um, I I think it's really important what you said too about raising and lowering the height of the bed to get it optimally positioned. I tell students and learners all the time when they're doing procedures, you know, it feels like no one ever has the time to prepare and position and set up, but then you have. Somehow the time to do everything three times, Um, you know, and and I remember when I was younger doing all sorts of stupid things like, you know, kneeling in the floor to start IVs on patients and and things that, you know, I wouldn't be able to get up these days. Um, But I think it's really important. And I feel like I just can't emphasize that enough to learners to take the time to position things not only for the patient, but for you uh, as the operator to have optimal success.
2: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, patient positioning for intubation, uh, I, I tell people that, uh, you know, there are certain things that are absolutely critical to us in life where, uh, you know, getting the position just right makes all the difference between you know disaster and satisfaction. Uh, you know, I'm I'm talking about things like buying property uh, and uh, and intubations, obviously. Um, but really, good patient positioning makes difficult intubations into easy intubations all the time. And you know, I I talk about this. Uh, I have a pet topic talking about you know intubating in confined spaces and weird positions and so forth. And it's very interesting to see that. Uh, you know, we know that intubation outside of the operating theater is much more complicated. It's much more difficult. There's a greater uh, uh, incidence of, of intubation difficulty and a failed intubation. And so people often interpret that to say, well, it's because in the operating theater, anaesthetists do the intubations uh, or anesthesiologists uh, and outside it's it's other people who may not be as skilled. But if you look at the studies of taking anesthesiologists out of the operating room and putting them in intubating in different environments, their level of difficulty and their level of complications immediately rises and dramatically rises, which says to me, it's not about the individual. Certainly, lots of practice and skill makes a big difference. But what's what's the big difference for us intubating in the operating theater? Well, we traditionally have 360 degree access to the patient. We've got the patient on a bed designed to position them exactly as we like. When the obese patient comes rolling in the door, we are already packing pillows and blankets and so forth on a bed to position them perfectly. Uh, We've got ideal lighting, we've got hot and cold running nurses, we've got everything we could possibly need. So of course we find it easier because the conditions are much, much better. So then the lesson to me is when I go and intubate on the ward or when I'm intubating, you know, in a ditch in the rain pre-hospital, I must make my intubating conditions as optimal as I possibly can. Uh, so get conditions good for you. And part of that is positioning the patient. Part of that is positioning yourself. Part of that is positioning your uh, equipment.
0: Ross, that, this may sound like a non sequitur, but it's related. Uh, in many cases here, we've been, um, or at least anesthesia has been uh, wearing PAPRs for innovations, you know, positive pressure hoods. Are you guys doing any of that?
2: So um, the only uh, sort of hoods that we have, uh, we've got one set of three, which we use when Uh, operating on patients with extreme drug-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, And um, we looked at the possibility of getting PAPERS or other kinds of hoods. And in the process, we discovered that the filters on the ones we've got for XDR-TB don't actually protect us against xdr So That was quite a fun little discovery we made during the COVID (laughs) pandemic. (laughs) The filters are not N95. Uh, So so no, we don't actually have the... um, we don't have uh, papers; they're not really in, in use here. Uh, certainly not in the, the, the state sector or the public sector uh, where, where I'm working. What we did do quite early uh, for my team is we moved to using reusable elastomeric respirators. So we use the, the 3M half face uh, respirators with encapsulated filters. So, you know, we get months and months of use, uh, out of, out of a set of filters with, with intermittent use. Uh, they do make communication a bit more difficult. Uh, some people prefer to wear disposable, uh, you know, N95s or FFP2 or three, uh, um, you know, disposable uh, respirators. But, uh, I, I must say our, our intubation team has had a, a statistic that I don't think, that we've had a single uh, team member infected, other than you know, community acquired COVID, so nobody has got COVID from intubating patients on our on our airway team uh, throughout the last eighteen months or so of the pandemic. So, so clearly something there uh, is working. There's been quite a bit of work which has been done looking at, uh, you know, does. The, the the level of the ppe make a difference to the intubation uh success rate and there were some early papers which uh which showed you know people were struggling to intubate with ppe the times were increasing don't get me onto the subject of the sort of aerosol boxes and that kind of thing or if you want to diatribe then do get me on the subject uh but um there's some really nice work which uh, came out of uh the the airway unit at, at guys in london in fact Uh, um, some researchers who I'm familiar with, some really great guys, where they, sorry, pun not intended that time, uh, where they used their intubation team to then intubate in uh, different levels of PPE. And they actually found no difference whether people were wearing a PAPA or just a disposable mask and uh, and goggles. Uh, And the commentary they made, and it's really nice work, uh, was that If you've got a highly trained team who are using protocols, who are training to intubate in these environments, then what they're wearing probably doesn't make a difference to their speed or success. Uh, But if you've got people who are not highly trained, who are not using uh, um, protocols and not intubating in these kind of environments, then if you add extra impediments, of course, you're going to slow them down. So the focus shouldn't necessarily be on exactly what we're wearing, but should be focusing on uh, training the team.
1: So we've got our patient positioned and we're all pre-oxygenated. Are you ready to go to sleep now or is there something else in between?
2: So uh, we've got our monitoring on, we've got our patient positioned, we've started our pre-oxygenation and then we uh, do a challenge response before we actually push the drugs. Uh, So the first thing that happens is uh, that – we get the intubator, the hot one, who's gonna actually be doing the primary airway management to state what the airway plan is. Now, this probably sounds a little bit daft because I've just told you, we always do exactly the same plan, but actually verbalizing the plan is really useful because remember, we're often in a situation where we've pulled together an ad hoc team. And I can tell you, uh, I was on duty two nights ago now, uh, and I arrived in the ward to do an intubation of a patient who needed to be transferred to ICU. Uh, and the, the, the two doctors who had been tasked to that ward that night uh, were a medical officer who, so this is a junior doctor who had um, only just started in our center, having uh, just moved down from, from further north in Africa, uh, and a, a resident in clinical pharmacology who has had no patient-facing work for the last two or three years. Uh, and, and that was my airway team. So talking through the plan and stating what the plan is actually is really quite important to make sure that everyone is on the same page. Uh, and, and we can then, as we talk through it, note, okay, hang on a moment. This patient you know, has got quite a, a significant beard. That might be a, an impediment. How are we going to work around that? So the challenge response is first to state the plan. We then have a step to double check that the uh, um the airway equipment is prepared we have a double check that the rescue equipment is ready uh, then if we're working in an environment where we've got tidal gas monitoring we confirm that our tidal oxygen is over 80 percent uh that's obviously not routinely uh, available uh, and then we confirm with a person who's pushing the drugs which is the the third role uh, the the drug, which drugs they're going to use, uh, and what dosages they're going to give. And again, we've standardized on our drugs, so we're doing just about all our intubations using uh, some pre-intubation fentanyl, followed by etomidate, followed by uh, succinylcholine, unless there is uh, there's some issue regarding the patient's renal functions or potassium, in which case we are using uh, rocuronium as our uh, our neuromuscular blocker. Uh, and again, because these are often ad hoc teams, uh, I might find myself intubating uh, in a team which has got a dermatologist and a, a neurologist as my assistants. Uh, talking through the drugs and the doses is very important. Once we've had that quick backwards and forwards checklist, that's often while we're continuing with the pre in any case. Uh, then we'll give the instruction to uh, to push the drugs and we'll proceed with the with the RSI. Don't you
1: feel too that doing this sort of verbal out loud checklist sort of serves to slow things down and bring down that level of tension in the
2: room. Absolutely. And it, it makes sure that everybody is on exactly the same page. So it's, it's, it's a way of forcing the sharing of the mental model, uh, which then sometimes brings out information, which you might've missed. And, and I've had it where uh, I, you know, I missed the step of confirming uh, that the patient's renal functions were normal. Uh, and as we've talked through their plan, uh, you know, somebody who is standing watching, or uh, or the nurse has said, "Hang on a moment." Uh, didn't they say that this guy's uh, um, you know, kidney functions have gone off, and his potassium was high, uh, and we've immediately been able to catch that. So yeah, that value of of sharing the model is really really important.
0: Now, some would argue that it it takes too long, it slows things down too much, and you know, hey, everyone's an expert here. Um, what do we need to go through all this for? So. It, estimate for us, at least, you know, in sort of recent life, innovating, you know, COVID patients in the hospital, that sort of setting, um, how long would you say it takes to do a quick verbal checklist like this? Um, And how often, maybe what percentage of the time, do you uh, change your plan because of it or, you know, discover new information? In other words, there's some, something changes because you did it.
2: So, are you talking about the, the whole process, uh, procedure checklist from the very beginning when we arrive and start assigning roles, or in, at this moment of kind of having just a quick uh, challenge response while we're doing the pre oxygenation before we uh, proceed to the RSI?
0: I guess the entire process of ha- having a formal um, uh, uh, protocol that, that you verify that you followed.
2: Right. So, I think it depends on the team and the setting. Uh probably from arrival when we start with that procedure checklist, literally you know buddy checking the PPE right through to actually uh, pushing the drugs, there is anything from about uh ten to thirty minutes uh, and and the thirty minutes outliers are the ones where uh, you know th- there's a significant impediment because we discover that there's some critical element that's missing, uh for instance, you know the um We know that we're going to be ventilating a patient on a ward uh, for a few hours waiting for an ICU bed, uh, and it turns out that the the ventilator which someone has brought uh, doesn't have a circuit. Uh, So, you know, typically the process from starting to prepare equipment and people for an intubation until we've actually dropped the tube is probably about uh, 15 minutes. This actual process of having the quick challenge and response and just double-checking, you know, are are we happy with equipment, are we happy with the plan, are we happy with the drugs... Uh, that takes sixty to one hundred and twenty seconds, uh, and what proportion of time has the as having a checklist uh, found little niggles? I would say just about every procedure. Uh, there's almost always some little factor which uh, which we can improve because we've run through the checklist. It might be double-checking that the, the suction is switched on and positioned next to the patient. It might be double-checking the, the order of the, um, the attachments in the circuit uh, so that we can connect the circuit immediately once the tube goes in. It might be uh, checking that uh, the, the syringe is connected to inflate the endotracheal tube cuff. But just about every time we run this process, we find little things that we can improve uh, in that, that patient's intubation attempt.
0: Well, that seems like pretty good yield. And as you say, it certainly sounds like the times when it takes longer is for a reason. So if there was nothing to do, you breeze right through everything. If you discover that you, if someone forgot to bring a laryngoscope or something, I mean, you're glad you, you took that time, even if it takes five more minutes. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, and I I think you made a critically important statement earlier. Is that you know you can either spend a a little bit of time on preparation, or you can spend a lot of time trying to uh, trying to fix the resulting complication.
1: Yeah. So, all right. So, um, you've already touched on your drugs. You said succinylcholine and atomidate with a little pre-induction fentanyl is sort of your go-to mix, right?
2: Yeah, there's an argument to be made for uh, potentially for using uh, ketamine. Uh, we have used ketamine in some cases. Uh, I think what's very important to note is that uh, these patients are often quite dehydrated. You know, By the time they are failing high flow, they're often not eating and drinking. Um, if you don't have humidified high flow and people have been on, on normal sort of wall oxygen or we often uh, had patients uh, before we were able to increase our number of high flow machines, we had patients on so-called double barrel oxygen. So nasal cannulae under a, a non-rebreather mask. And those patients are often really quite dehydrated. And to give, uh, that kind of patient, uh, an RSI dose of propofol, uh, is knocking on death's door. Sure. Sure. So, and so real
1: quick, what's your rationale for succinylcholine versus rocuronium?
2: Uh, so if you look at studies of intubating conditions, uh, There's not a big difference between sucks and rock unless you want to have really, really rapid speed. Uh, you can use big doses of rock and, and get intubating conditions quickly, but if you want intubating conditions in in you know thirty to forty five seconds, uh, then Sux is just that little bit faster. And because these patients desaturate so fast, we we've leveraged that uh, that advantage. I know maybe in the twenty twenties it's no longer cool to say that uh, we we like Sux, uh, but uh, I, I think it does give that that speed edge, uh, and I'm I'm willing. To engage with anyone who wants to argue, we can organize some uh, sucks dashes uh, down the hospital corridors and we can see which which acts faster.
1: Well, you're right. It probably isn't very cool to say, but I think that does make good sense. Uh, like you said, just even that little bit of advantage in terms of time. Um, and then your, your pre-induction fentanyl for what, really? Just additional relaxation, um, hemodynamic? affects what
2: yeah so definitely does help with hemodynamics again many of these patients are actually uh, hypertensive uh, they're often also very very stressed uh, and we we found a lot of patients uh, are very very anxious once you put a, a, a tightly sealing mask on their face although some do uh, enjoy the, the the benefit of the additional CPAP uh, or peep at least Um, the, the pre-induction fentanyl definitely controls a lot of the blood pressure spikes we've seen with the rapid intubations with the Tomidate, and often it just makes the patients less anxious and a little bit more comfortable I, I know that fentanyl is not traditionally seen as an as an anxiolytic uh, but uh, it, it does give a little bit of a warm fuzzy uh, and so where we've where we've got the time uh, and where we've you know got the skill set at the bedside uh, then i'm I'm quite a fan of using just just a touch of fentanyl to take the edge off
1: yeah, I, I like fentanyl. Uh, do you ever use any benzodiazepines? A uh, little
2: something, something like a bit of mydazolam yeah, or uh, or midazolam. Midazolam. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of uh, of benzos, uh, except actually as as anxiolytics. But I think people often use far too much, uh, and one has to be very very cautious in the patient with respiratory compromise in the combination of a benzodiazepine and an opiate. They they're very very strong potentiators of each other, uh, so. So, you know, perioperatively, I often use doses of uh, midazolam that that people would chuckle at. I often use half or one milligram uh, as an anxiolytic. But I, I, I think... From years of experience, I've realized that, uh, that giving a, a small uh, tot of uh, fentanyl uh, is often just as, as effective. And the other thing to be careful about if you're using benzodiazepines, particularly in the elderly, is you will, if you give them to lots of patients, you'll start to see paradoxical reactions. Uh, and, and a paradoxical reaction in a hypoxic uh, COVID patient is not a pretty sight.
1: I would imagine not. So, all right. So now you, you've got them to sleep. You've got the tube in, they're intubated. What next? Uh, I mean, we could, we could take this conversation out for another hour talking about ventilatory management of COVID patients, but in the immediate period, right after you get the tube in, what are sort of your, your sort of things you're winding down your intubation?
2: Right yeah so what's on our checklist is obviously we like to have our our airway assistant also see the uh, the tube going through the cords um, on the on the VL screen uh, and then immediately inflate the cuff we have our ventilator and circuit pre-prepared, and the ventilator actually on. So as soon as the tube goes in and the cuff is inflated, the ventilator gets connected directly. Uh, so our, well, we we don't even need to pick up the uh, the bag mask again. Um, we then confirm that the tube depth and that we've got adequate ventilation. Uh, and then the, our endotracheal tube gets double secured. So it gets uh, uh, taped with um, you know a non uh, elastic tape that, that holds it firmly, and then it gets double-tied with uh, with, with tracheostomy uh, tape that goes around the patient's head. So that tube is then very, very secure. We then, to assist our ICU colleagues, uh, immediately place a, a nasogastric tube. Uh, you know, While we're all PPE'd up and, and ready to go, that's, that's it helps them out, and also it allows us to decompress the stomach if there was any entrained gas. Um, we then... Patients on the ventilator, and you recall most of them have now had uh, just an induction agent and a dose of sucks, So we fairly rapidly follow that up with quite a hefty loading dose of uh, of morphine, uh, both for you know if the patient does have any awareness to try and improve their comfort, uh, but uh, also. It- just gives us a measure of protection uh, if if there's going to be awareness down the line, and often makes the ventilation a bit easier. And then we acknowledge that most of these patients are not coming off a of ventilator for a while, and we give them a really solid dose uh, of, of of rocuronium or succinylcholine. Uh, patients all in our ICUs go onto a cisatricurium infusion uh, for the first couple of days with COVID, so we make sure that they're well relaxed. In terms of ventilator strategy, uh, mode, I don't think there's any particular evidence to suggest any mode is better. But these patients really respond very well to, to quite a substantial level of PEEP. You know, Typically, by the time we're intubating them, they've, they've got a more ALDS-like picture uh, from COVID. So it's not unusual for us to be ventilating them with 10 to 15 centimeters of water a PEEP. Uh, and then obviously, we try and make sure our driving pressure is not excessive to prevent uh, ventilator induced lung injury. Uh, we typically are intubating them uh, directly onto a transport ventilator so we can facilitate the transfer to ICU. Um, our go to it for our team at the moment is, a, is an Oxylog 3000, which is nice because it gives you some. Basic ventilator graphics that allow you to, to adjust all of these things, and they're typically on 100% O2 because uh, you know it's unusual for us to get Sats up into the 90s. Uh, most of them are satting in the in the 70s and 80s, even on the vent. If their Sats do come up above 92, I, I get my guys to uh, then start titrating the uh, the oxygen concentration down again. Uh, so uh, that's that's the basic standard approach, and then. Uh, typically, we'll, we'll at that stage start a propofol infusion for the transfer. And if we land up ventilating patients on the wards, uh, then we'll make sure that they're well, they're well settled. We'll start a propofol infusion and we'll often start the uh, the, the satracurium infusion if you've got an extra pump. Otherwise, we give uh, top-up bolus doses of, of paralytic. Um, and yeah, obviously, if the patients aren't catheterized, uh, then they typically get a urinary catheter. So we can uh, we can obviously monitor their outputs. Uh, we always make sure that they've got two IVs. So we've got some security of our IV access. Uh, we try not to run the things like the propofol infusion just onto a sideline of an IV. We try and run that either through a, a clave with a non-return valve uh, or on a dedicated IV. So we're sort of setting ourselves up uh, to close as many of the holes in the Swiss cheese for these patients if they're going to be ventilated in a, in a remote environment before they get to ICU.
1: All right. Well, I think this has been a great discussion of intubation, not only in the COVID patient, but a lot of good stuff, like we said, just for everyday intubations and moving forward. Um, Brandon, you have anything else you want to throw in?
0: Yeah, I I think it it is most interesting as kind of a a microcosm of how we do things in general. else do you think that some of the things that you've been doing for COVID now, you're going to leave in place for just routine airway management in the future?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, many of the things we're doing is stuff that we do in the operating theater anyway. But I think uh, great value of COVID has been it's really sold people on uh, ubiquitous use of video laryngoscopy on uh, always uh, preloading loading uh, introduces so we've standardized on on a bougie with a, um, a decant or a d grip uh, it has really sold people on the value of of checklists uh, of role assignments uh, of uh, you know quick sharing of that mental model you know having a quick conversation before one, one forges ahead uh, so th- there's a lot of aspects that Maybe it highlights that we we weren't doing things routinely as well as we could, and uh, I think we're definitely going to carry a lot of that forwards. And then, you know, stepping back and taking a, a much more broad and maybe slightly philosophical view, yeah, you know, the the benefit of, uh, of of training people across disciplines on the same systems, um, you know, that's really been a great success of things like the Alphabet Soup courses, you know, like the the ACLS, ATLS uh, flavor, of course, is that it does generate a, a standardized way of doing things and allows people to fall into roles. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's going to be something which hopefully we're going to take forwards, that we, we're going to encourage people that you know using standardized systems uh, and using uh, standardized checklists and approaches to these critical situations uh, really has got it's got great value for patients, as long as one remembers that you know a checklist or or a guideline. It, it's always you know a guide to the wise, uh, not rules for fools. Uh, you should always be ready to personalize the treatment to the patient, uh, but remember that if you if you break the the rule or if you defer from the guideline, you should have a, a good logical and evidence based reason for doing it.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, I think this has been a huge help. Thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Well, thanks for the invitation. It's really great to chat to you guys.
0: And we'll see the rest of you guys next time. Uh, Remember, the information expressed in the show is really just general educational content. Don't use it as the sole reference for any of your patient care. And any opinions you hear here are really just ours and don't represent anyone we may be affiliated with.